Good afternoon, and is this, is this working? Good afternoon, and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Michael Cannon. I'm our Director of Health Policy Studies here at Cato. And uh, today we'll be discussing uh, an aspect of the health care reform legislation that has made its way through Congress and has seen a new iteration in a proposal that President Obama released just this morning. We're going to be talking about an aspect of it that has been overlooked uh, in almost all uh, by almost all uh, sides of the debate. Um, that is the effect that this legislation would have on uh, the work incentives of low- and middle-income Americans, as well as the incentives to drop coverage, the financial incentives the legislation would create to drop coverage. Now, with regard to the first uh, uh, type of uh, financial incentive, Economists refer to these as implicit mar – what we're going to be talking about is what, uh, are what economists call implicit marginal tax rates or effective marginal tax rates um, because uh, – they call them implicit or effective because they're not actual taxes. Not all of the, the tax rate is attributable to actual taxes that you're paying to the federal government, but – some of it is attributable to lost subsidies that you uh, uh, that you forego when your income rises, uh, that have and those lost subsidies have the same effect as an explicit tax when it comes to uh, a worker's incentive to earn another dollar. Now, one of the leading experts in this field is uh, Gene Sterley of the Urban Institute. We had hoped to have uh, uh, Mr. Sterley here to present uh, his perspective on the problems of effective marginal tax rates um, in federal policy. Uh, unfortunately, Mr. Shirley was detained, but I encourage all of you, uh, whether you're here at Cato uh, or whether you're watching this uh, online, uh, to go to the Urban Institute website and, uh, and peruse some of Mr. Sturley's work on the uh, prevalence and the effects of uh, these high effective marginal tax rates that we're going to be discussing today. So um, with that, I'd like to start framing the issue of, uh, of implicit tax rates or effective marginal tax rates uh, by showing really how they appear in the legislation that has made its way through Congress and the plan that President Obama has released today. Both of those, or really all three of those plans, uh, are fairly similar. Uh, they're very similar, actually, in, in a lot of ways. Their aim is to expand health insurance coverage. Uh, through what uh, health, pol health policy folks call an individual mandate re requiring people to purchase health insurance. And for those who are at the lower end of the income scale, they create subsidies in order to help, those, uh, help them afford uh, the required or the mandatory coverage. Those subsidies are typically called health insurance tax credits. Uh, some, in some cases, they may offset actual taxes that the workers have paid. But in a lot of cases, they are just government subsidies that are being, uh, that are being given to these, to these low-income workers. Now, the interaction or, or the combination of the, the individual mandate that uh, the, the, the legislation would create and, and the way that mandate is structured and the subsidies that the, legis uh, the legislation offers to low- and middle-income workers create these effective marginal tax rates. So um, let's look at the Senate bill and how it would treat uh, single adults. First, let's look at the individual mandate. For a family of, uh, f uh, or for a single adult earning about uh, the poverty line, the Senate bill would uh, require that that 
single childless adult to pay 2% of adjusted gross income toward the cost of the mandatory health insurance. Now, that is what I like to call the mandate tax. There's uh, been some dispute over whether the individual mandate is actually a tax or not. I think it's a fairly straightforward and simple issue. Uh, If the federal government taxed you $10,000, collected $10,000 from you, and gave that to a private insurance company to provide you health insurance, we would all agree that that's a tax. That's conceptually little different from the federal government requiring you to send $10,000 to a private insurance company so that they will provide you health insurance. And in one of the handouts, uh, the, the, uh, the study that the Cato Institute published where I uh, uh, present these findings, uh, I have uh, quotes from a number of Democratic economists, uh, some of them advisors to President Obama, who liken uh, the individual mandate or uh, its, its, uh, its partner in crime, the employer mandate, to, to taxes. So this mandate tax for a, fa- a single childless adult begins at 2% of adjusted gross income under the Senate legislation. And as that single adult's income rises, so does that mandate tax rate. So it doesn't remain a flat 2%. It rises all the way up to 9.8%. And... That's the share of income that the uh, that a single childless adult has to pay uh, toward their health insurance. It, it rises to 9.8% by, I believe it's uh, 300% of the federal poverty level, or ju- just over uh, $30,000 per year in 2009 dollars. So what's interesting, first off, about this mandate tax is that the rate grows as your income grows. And so the actual effect or the effective marginal tax rate that it creates is higher than the, than the statutory mandate tax rate. So, so what does this mean? Well, even though the statutory mandate tax rates in the Senate bill range from 2% to six, I'm sorry to 9.8% of adjusted gross income the fact that the tax rate is rising at the same time your adjusted gross income is rising and that that higher tax rate is being applied not just to the marginal dollar that you earn but to the entire base your entire adjusted gross income the the marginal mandate tax rates actually range, instead of from just 2% to 9.8%, under the Senate bill, they range from 2% to 53%, which means that in some cases, if you earn an additional dollar, you can lose 53 cents of that dollar uh, to this mandate tax. And so that's why we see uh, what we see here in, um, in the blue line, which, uh, which I, I describe as the mandate tax liability. As your earnings as your adjusted gross income rises, the amount that you have to pay toward your health insurance premiums rise, rises as well. Until it reaches this point right here at about 300% of the... Uh, um, I'm sorry, it's, it's, it's not indicated by that. Until it reaches uh, this point right here where the, your mandate tax liability equals the minimum amount of coverage that the federal government would require you to purchase under the Senate bill, which is a health plan with an actuarial value of 60%. What that means is for a typical population, that health plan would pay 60% of of, uh, that population's health care costs.
after that point, the uh, the mandate tax doesn't have any effect at the margin. You're still paying 9.8% of uh, – I'm sorry. You're not paying 9.8% of your adjusted gross income. You're paying the uh, premium or, – or you're paying the average cost of um, – uh, a plan with an actuarial value of 60%. But the mandate tax liability is not the only thing that's going on here. Uh, in fact, there, uh, you, can see from this, you can see from this graph that there are, other, uh, that there are subsidies that are being offered to uh, people with low incomes, and those subsidies are declining over time. So what are those subsidies? Well, the Senate bill would provide everyone below 300% of the federal poverty level with the difference between, and actually this goes straight to an insurance company, but the difference between a, a, the premiums for a plan with an actuarial value of 70% and their mandate tax li- liability. So you pay your mandate tax liability to an insurance company, and then whatever else the insurance company needs to provide you that 70% actuarial value plan, the federal government coughs up, uh, delivers uh, directly to that insurance company. Now, there, for those with, uh, with, with very low incomes, there are additional subsidies called uh, cost-sharing subsidies. They, they're called in the legislation cost-sharing tax credits. And the way these cost-sharing tax credits work is if you have uh, an adjusted gross income of under 100 and – let's see, under the Senate bill of under 133 uh, – I'm sorry, under 150 percent of the federal poverty level or about $17,000 – you get a, a cost-sharing subsidy that is sufficient to bring the actuarial value of your plan from 70% up to 90% so that your cost-sharing is minimized, the amount of uh, the, the, the health insurance plans that people with uh, adjusted gross income between 100% and 150% of the federal poverty level receive is 90%, covers 90% of the... Um, of the healthcare expenses of a, of a typical population. Now, if your earnings exceed, if your adjusted gross income exceeds 150% of the federal poverty level, you no longer receive a cost-sharing subsidy that brings you up to a 90% actuarial value. You receive a cost-sharing subsidy that only brings you up to an 80% actuarial value. What that means is you've just lost a subsidy. If you earn $1 over that threshold of 150% of the federal poverty level, you can lose a subsidy that is worth hundreds or maybe a, a thousand or more dollars just by earning one additional dollar. So what this, what this creates is what uh, economists call a cliff effect, and you can see it right here. This is a cliff. If your adjusted gross income exceeds this point, 150% of the federal poverty level, you fall off this cliff and you lose that subsidy. That has a, a, a dramatic effect on the, your incentive to earn that additional dollar that puts you over 150% of the federal poverty level. Because you earn that additional dollar and you lose 100, or hundreds or maybe $1,000 in subsidy. That happens again here at 200% of the federal poverty level, where if you earn $1 over 200% of the federal poverty level, your cost-sharing subsidy decreases from uh, what would be required to uh, bring you up to a uh, to uh, a plan with an eighty percent actuarial value, to nothing, you lose any what they of what they call these cost sharing subsidies. You still uh, receive the health insurance subsidies, 
that bring you up to a 70% actuarial value. But again, you lose basically the same amount that you lost right here uh, for the crime of going $1 over the threshold for eligibility for the, the, this cost-sharing subsidy right here. That creates another cliff effect here. And then when, um, when you're no longer required, when, you, when your mandate tax liability reaches the amount of a 60% actuarial value plan, you're really no longer required to purchase any more. You could receive uh, additional subsidies beyond this point if you stuck with a 70% actuarial value, actuarial value plan. But for the purposes of illustrating uh, the, um, uh, the or, or presenting these results as conservatively as possible, I, I wanted to assume that no one is doing anything that they're not required to do. I wanted to show only what the legislation would require people to do. And because it wouldn't require you to purchase anything more than a 60% actuarial plan, value plan right here, I assume that uh, the, uh, I, I presented this graph such that the, uh, the health insurance subsidies would disappear here at 300% of the federal poverty level. Um, and, and so I represented uh, here as a cliff uh, what would actually be a slower phasing out of, um, of this subsidy if you decided to stick with a 70% actuarial, actuarial value plan, but then again you're going beyond what the government would require you to do. So in combination, what do these two things, uh, what, what, what does all this mean for a low or middle-income worker's incentive to earn an additional dollar? Well, what it means is that we have to add the, the change in their mandate tax liability, how much of, their, of that additional dollar they would lose to a higher mandate tax liability, and how much uh, they lose in cost-sharing subsidies or the health insurance subsidies. And as it turns out, they can lose quite a bit. So, uh, but rather than just show, uh, show these effects in isolation, we, I, I wanted to uh, demonstrate the, the impact they would have in real life where people are already facing, that there, we already have a federal tax system, people are, are already facing uh, incent, uh, uh, disincentives to earn as a result of the federal tax code, including the child tax credit and the earned income tax credit. And so... Um, so in the paper and in these graphs, what I wanted to do is, 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 is present a fuller picture of the sort of work disincentives that uh, would exist under the House bill or the Senate bill or President Obama's new plan. And, um, and I incorporated the, the, the current tax code in order to do that. Now, before I, I get to those, uh, to those figures, there are a number of ways of presenting the effective marginal tax rates the, or the implicit tax rates or the disincentives to earn another dollar uh, that, would be, that would exist under, uh, under these, these plans. And the, the reason is that because when you have these cliffs, the implicit marginal tax rate that you calculate is very sensitive to the amount of additional income that you assume someone earns. So if someone earns just $1 over this, uh, this, this threshold where your cost-sharing subsidy disappears and you lose $1,000, well, then that is a very high implicit marginal tax rate. You uh, are $999 worse off for having earned one additional dollar. But if you earn $1,000, if you earn $1,000, and that's what puts you over this threshold, and you lose $1,000, well, then your marginal effective, effective marginal tax rate is only 100%. 
the rules of the game haven't changed. What changes is the amount of additional uh, income that we assume someone has earned. And so rather than present a distorted picture where I show uh, uh, effective marginal tax rates of thousands of percentages, which would be accurate, I guess it wouldn't be distorted, it would be accurate, um, I wanted to uh, present something a little more, a little more tangible um, uh, and, and a little more, more like the sort of uh, situations, the sort of decisions that workers would be facing. So the first way I wanted to present those data uh, were like, uh, is, is like this. Uh, this graph shows what the uh, effective marginal tax rates uh, are for a family of four uh, between, you know, within the relevant range of income that we're talking about here, but between 100 and 400 percent of the federal poverty level, or in 2009, 22 to 87,000, earning 22 to 87,000 dollars per year. Uh, I, we've got it for current law as well as the three plans that are before us. And I, I should, I should pause now to say parenthetically that these are numbers that we crunched th this morning based on the president's plan that he released at 10 a.m. Now, I am confident that I could have crunched these numbers all by myself, uh, but not between 10 a.m. and 12 noon. For that, I have to thank my research assistant, uh, Victoria Payne, who has just done a fantastic job with all of these spreadsheets, and, and I, I credit her in, in, the, in the paper that we released to you today. Uh, I could have done this myself, but uh, when it comes to the spreadsheets that we put together, uh, I like to call Tori Neo because she really sees the matrix and knows how, how all these things work and was able to crunch these out, not only in, it over eight, uh, in less than two hours, but while she was on vacation as well. She's on vacation right now, and so I owe her a week's worth of lunches. But but thanks but thanks to thanks to her uh, and 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 this doesn't count as a vacation day I don't I don't think, uh, but thanks to her hard work we also have the the uh, the effective marginal tax rates for the uh, proposal that the president released this morning. First, let's look at the effective marginal tax rates under current law. And 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 for this graph, I should explain. For this graph, the amount of additional earnings that we assume uh, is. 5% of the federal poverty level in 2009, which was, you know, a fairly round number, about $1,100 uh, uh, for a family of four. That's the sort of – the decision about whether to earn another $1,000 is the sort of decision that families face pretty frequently. Should I take – should I work those extra shifts? Should I take a part-time job? Um, uh, these, these are the sorts of decisions uh, that, that people face all the time. And so it's a reasonable way to look at uh, the effect that uh, the House, Senate, now the Obama plan, would have on low- and middle-income workers' incentive to earn an additional dollar. Under current law, families of four in this range of uh, income, between twenty dollars and $90,000 per year, don't face effective marginal tax rates any higher than I think it's that, I think that's under 50% right there. And that's uh, counting the, the federal tax code. It's counting, including the child tax credit and the earned income tax credit. So um, the, their incentive to earn, uh, well, every time they earn an additional dollar, they're getting to keep at least, I, I'm sorry, every time they're earning an additional $1,100, they're getting to keep at least 550 of those dollars. Contrast that to what would happen under the House, Senate, and Obama plans. You can see the – well, let's start with the House bill. Uh, you can see several – well, in each of these, you can see several peaks 
where the amount that they would that this family of four would get to keep out of that additional $1,100 of earnings is, is very low. Their effective marginal tax rate is very high. It exceeds 100% here in a number of places, which means that if they earn another $1,100, they end up worse off financially and not better off financially. In the House, I think we have uh, four uh, places where this happens. The reason we have those four places is because those spikes are due largely to these cliff effects from the subsidies that disappear. Um, under the House bill, we have uh, four or five of those cliff effects, four of them that leave, the, uh, that leave the, our family of four worse off because they exceed the um, effective marginal tax rate. It exceeds 100%. And some of them, uh, under the House bill um, here and under the Senate bill and the Obama plan here and here, uh, really punish this family of four for earning that additional $1,100. Because it, uh, they face an effective marginal tax rate of 160% or nearly 180%, or here in the case of the Obama plan, an effective marginal tax rate of 200%. So they earn another $1,100. They're left $2,200 worse off as a result. Now, that is one way of presenting this. These are very real effects that people would face under, this, uh, under these plans. What's another way, but, but uh, a, a reasonable objection to this way of presenting these, these data would be people don't plan the rest of their lives. They don't plan their climb up the economic ladder in $1,100 increments. They're not thinking about the next $1,000 they earn. They're thinking about the next $10,000, dollars $50,000 that they're going to earn. And that's a reasonable objection to, to presenting the data this way. So we did it another way. This one, this graph is a little, uh, the, the concept is largely the same, but it's a little more difficult to explain. What The main difference between this graph and the other graph is that uh, this graph assumes different uh, uh, varying uh, amounts of additional income that our family of four is going to earn. So the way to read this graph is with any of these lines, start at the beginning of that line, and each point along the rest of that line represents the total uh, or the average effective marginal tax rate that the family of four would face if they earned from the beginning of that line, if they increased their earnings from the from uh, the beginning of that line to any other point on that line, so uh, to take the case of someone who began a family four that began at uh, the federal poverty level about twenty two thousand dollars per year, and earned all the way up to a hundred thousand dollars per year, well, their effective marginal tax rate over that under current law, over that broad swath of additional earned income is about 33%, meaning that for every additional dollar they earned, uh, about 78,000 additional dollars that, that they earned, they got to keep two out of every three additional dollars earned. So, you know, a little over $50,000 of that additional $78,000 they get to keep. Their, their, their uh, after-tax income went up by that much. Compare that to, and, and at some point it does rise. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm getting way ahead of myself. At some point, that does rise uh, under current law. That does rise above 40 percent for these families. At about uh, a little more than twice the um, 
the federal poverty level. If they earn, if they began here, the federal poverty level earned a little over more than uh, uh, earned to increase the, their adjusted gross income to a little over twice the federal poverty level, then, or maybe that is just twice the federal poverty level, then they would face uh, an effective marginal tax rate over that whole range of additional income of a little over 40%. But that's the highest that it rises under current law. Compare that to what's going on under the House, the Senate, and the Obama plans. Under the Senate bill, I won't spend any time really talking about the House bill because it's really, um, it's, it's not a viable option uh, for, for the Democrats at this point. But under the Senate bill, if you begin, this family four begins at uh, the federal poverty level, then they could see there uh, that over a, 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 uh, a broad range of income, they could see an effective marginal tax rate that uh, rises over 70%. Um, I believe it is, yes, we have it up there at 73%. So if they increase their earnings from that 20, uh, $22,000 to, uh, what is that about, uh, $47,000, you're talking about a 45 I'm sorry, a, a $25,000 jump in their earnings, they would only get to keep about uh, uh, one out of every $4, additional $4 that they earned. Their take-home pay would only go up. They, they would put forth uh, one, for every $1 of work effort they put forth, they, their take-home pay would go up by 27 cents. That actually looks pretty good if you compare it to the Obama plan. Uh, President Obama begins his subsidies at uh, 133% of the federal poverty level. At least we believe that that's uh, what he does. There's, um, there's some indication in the in – the, uh, we think there, uh, there was an error in the plan that he released this, this morning that su it suggests at one place that he would actually begin these subsidies at 100% of the federal poverty level. Uh, he, he, uh, it suggests that in one place. In three other places, it, uh, it, it suggests that these subsidies would begin – at 133% of the federal poverty level. We wanted to assume that the president was correct and his, and his staff were correct three out of four times rather than one out of four times. So we're starting here. And what happens is uh, because of those cliff effects and because of the mandate tax liability that rises as their income rises, what happens, what happens is uh, these fam our family of four under the Obama plan could see an effective marginal tax rate over broad uh, 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 ranges of added income that approach or exceed 90%. For every additional dollar of work effort they put forth, they get to keep 10 cents. That, pr that presents a pretty heavy disincentive for uh, low and even middle income families to climb the income ladder. Uh, be, if you look at it, these are the peaks right here. The, the, the peak under the president's proposal is 90%. But the average, as we've got down here under the, uh, uh, the Senate bill, is still 62%. So you're really only getting to keep about one out of every three additional dollars that you earn. And under the president's proposal, it's even worse. Over this whole range of income, you're only getting to keep about one out of every additional $4 of income earned. So that presents a pretty substantial disincentive for, um, for families of four <clears throat> to climb the economic ladder. If you look at the paper uh, that we put out um, for you, the same sorts of disincentives exist for, uh, uh, for single adults. There are, uh, the effective marginal tax rates are lower 
for single childless adults, but they're still pretty substantial, and, and often over they often exceed 50%. So um, the problem... Uh, supporters of the president's plan uh, or, or even uh, more radical ways of... Uh, of, of reforming health care might say, well, you know what? This is inevi- an inevitable consequence of providing subsidies to people with low incomes. The, they'll say the only way to solve this problem is to have those subsidies not disappear as income rises. Either you don't have the subsidies or you... Uh, or you make the health care, the health insurance, the subsidies, or the amount of health care that people receive, you make the program universal. You give everyone the same subsidy. Advocates of a single-payer plan would look at this and say, well, yes, this is evidence of why we need, rather than having targeted subsidies at low-income people that disappear as their earnings rise and trap people in poverty, we need a uniform universal system where everyone gets the same health insurance. And you don't get these sorts of incentives. My response to that is that, yes, you wouldn't get these sorts of incentives that come from disappearing subsidies, these perverse incentives that come from disappearing subsidies. You would get perverse incentives from the taxes, the explicit taxes that would be required to fund uh, a single-payer system. And those uh, would not just fall on the wealthiest Americans. You would have higher tax rates on middle and even low-income Americans as well. So you cannot solve this problem by moving to a single-payer system. Um, I think that the only way to solve this sort of problem uh, is to abandon the, the, the very approach that the president and, the, and his allies in uh, Congress have taken to reforming health care. This approach is uh, this is uh, not this approach does not reduce health care costs. It shifts health care costs from the premium payer to the taxpayer. When we look at these insurance subsidies right here, what we're talking about is tax revenues, tax dollars that people are having to uh, pay to the federal government up above and beyond whatever they're paying to their private insurance company to subsidize others. This isn't reducing the cost of health care. It's a game of uh, what my colleague Arnold Kling likes to play, hide the premium. They're hiding the premium from the low-income people by uh, by uh, by imposing that premium on, uh, on higher-income people. It shifts costs. It does not reduce them. The way to make healthcare more affordable to people at the lower end of the economic ladder is through innovations that make healthcare better and more affordable, and bring it and bring healthcare and health insurance within the reach of people with lower incomes, um, in, uh, t- to an increasing extent over time. That sort of healthcare reform, innovation, which I think is the most important sort of healthcare reform, does not create these sorts of perverse incentives. It it, it makes it easier for people to climb the economic ladder rather than harder for people to climb the economic ladder, as the Obama plan would do. So uh, I want to move now away from uh, the, the implicit tax rates that would exist under these three plans and talk about another aspect, of the, a related aspect of these plans, which is the incentives that they would create for people to drop coverage. Now, we, we decided to go ahead and do this because once we laid out all, put together all the spreadsheets for, uh, to calculate the implicit tax rates, we realized it was just a couple more lines and we would be able to quantify the effect that these, that these plans uh, would have on uh, people's incentive to drop coverage. 
In the House plan, the Senate plan, and the President's plan, there's, an, as I mentioned, an individual mandate. There are subsidies that help people purchase. So your people will be required to uh, uh, pay a certain portion of their adjusted gross income toward health insurance. Uh, there are subsidies to help people uh, make up th the gap between that and the required amount of insurance. And there are subsidies on top of that to help lower-income people get even more insurance. And if you don't purchase health insurance, each one of these plans has penalties for people who don't comply with the individual mandate. Um, for example, under the, under the Senate bill, uh, the penalty, well, under the House bill, it is a uh, flat 2.5% of adjusted gross income if you don't buy health insurance. Under the Senate bill, it's a percentage that now escapes me, then it's, which is then replaced by a flat amount, and then there's an exemption if, you are, have an in, if your income is within a certain range, and then, um, and then uh, there's a uh, flat percentage that kicks in again. Um, and the President's uh, proposal makes modifications uh, to both the House and Senate penalties. But what what we did with, with, with this uh, graph right here, and we did it for, uh, for, this is for families of four, we did it for single childless adults as well. We said, all right, well, what if someone, decide, someone was purchasing health insurance and they wanted to drop coverage and see how much money they would save by dropping coverage? What if we took a, account of uh, the mandate tax liability that they would uh, no longer be paying, the subsidies that they would forego, um, and the penalties that they would have to pay? And we took account of all those effects. How much better or worse off would they be financially if they dropped coverage? And what happens is, as it turns out, some people would be worse off financially. These are the people who are receiving uh, at the lower end of the income uh, ladder. You can see them here. This line right here is, uh, is uh, this is the financial incentive if, uh, on the y-axis. If it's positive, that means you have a positive financial incentive. But if it's negative, that means that you would lose money if you drop coverage. And for people with uh, low incomes, families of four with low incomes, basically uh, beneath uh, about 30000 and change under the House bill or 40, 000, uh, beneath $40,000 under the Senate and President and Obama's plans, these people would be worse off if they dropped health insurance coverage. If it, but as you move up the income ladder from there, the incentive to drop coverage rises dramatically to the point that under the Senate bill, families of four uh, earning about $80,000 a year could save $8,000 if they dropped coverage. And uh, families of four under the president's plan earning, I think that's about $85,000 or $86,000 a year or more, could save nearly $10,000 per year if they dropped coverage. Now, you might ask, what's the big deal? You know, if I dropped health insurance, my health insurance right now, I'd save a lot of money. Uh, that's true, but the president's plan and the House and Senate plans contain another feature uh, which re that requires health insurance companies to uh, offer health insurance coverage to all comers at standard rates, no matter how sick they are. Now, combine the incentive to drop coverage that we see here with that provision of the House, the Senate, and the president's plans, and what do you get? Well, right now, if you drop coverage, what, what's the risk that you face? When you need health insurance, you're, go, uh, you're going to be sick, and an insurance company is going to take that into account when they set your premiums, and you're going to have to pay higher premiums. If you stayed with your, the coverage you have right now, you'd be protected against premium increases, at least if you buy in the individual market. Um, but, and that's the way that 
markets prevent individuals from gaming health insurance, really from taking advantage of other people in the health insurance pool. They say you, cannot, you can drop your coverage fine, but if you come back to us sick and you haven't been paying premiums into the pool, we are going to charge you higher premiums. That's how markets discourage that sort of irresponsible behavior. But under the president's plan uh, and the House plan and the Senate plan, that disincentive, that check on irresponsible behavior is thrown out the window because they would require insurance companies to issue you coverage at standard rates no matter how sick you are. Um, so, so basically what, the, what, the, what this legislation would do is uh, in, create an enormous incentive uh, for people to drop their coverage and take away any disincentive for them to do so. And so what sort of dynamic does that set in, uh, set in motion? Who the, who's going to drop their coverage first if, if, if they can save all this money? Well, it's going to be the people who don't derive much benefit from their health insurance coverage, healthy people. Other parts of the president's legislation, actually the uh, related parts uh, of, 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 of these plans, would jack up premiums on young and healthy people. And in so doing, these people are going to be paying higher premiums than before. They're going to see these financial incentives. They're going to see their friends drop coverage and have more disposable income. They are going to then want to drop their coverage, safe in the knowledge that they will be able to buy health insurance whenever they need it. And the insurance companies can't charge them any more than they charge anyone else in their age group. And so what the what the uh, what these plans pretend is a is an unraveling of insurance markets. When healthy people get a hold of these incentives, uh, realize that these incentives are there, they're going to drop coverage. That's going to make the health insurance pool sicker. And under the uh, the, the rules of these three plans, insurance companies are going to have to uh, raise rates on everybody uh, to to account for uh, the the sicker profile of these pools. That's going to increase these financial incentives to drop coverage uh, above where they are right now, above $10,000 for some families of four, and lead to what we call an adverse selection death spiral that, um, that causes plans to go out of business. Um, the, and, and so what's interesting, I think the, the takeaway is we, we saw the president's plan that was released this morning. We've made it available to you as a handout. You can also find it on the White House website. Uh, in, in many ways, what the president did was rather than come up with a new bipartisan, uh, a new proposal that's meant to reach out to Republicans or, or achieve any sort of bipartisan compromise, he basically split the difference between the House and the Senate bills in an attempt uh, to get those, to get, come up with one bill that can make it through the Senate, through the reconciliation process, and, uh, and, and then make it palatable for House members to pass the Senate bill with changes made through reconciliation. But what, in effect, what the president did was uh, he increased the effective marginal tax rates. I'm sorry, we want to be here. That lower income Americans would face under his health plan. Actually, both of these graphs illustrate that because the president, uh, uh, the president's plan for the first time would create uh, marginal uh, effective marginal tax rates of 200 percent. If you look at if you're using this margin, and of 90 percent if you're using this margin. I should say these margins. So for low, lower-income Americans, the president's compromise would increase implicit marginal tax rates dramatically compared to the House and Senate plans. And for higher-income Americans, well, it would increase the incentive to drop coverage. So compared to the House and Senate plans, the, uh, the president's plan would keep more, would trap more Americans in poverty and would encourage more uh, well, uh, better-off Americans to drop coverage and lead to an even quicker adverse selection death spiral 
that would uh, uh, that, that could ultimately undo private health insurance markets. So there's a lot more to be said about these issues, and I again regret that, uh, that Mr. Sturley was detained uh, so that you're not going to be able to ask him questions directly. Again, I encourage you to go to the Urban Institute website to look at the, uh, the, the very important work that he has done in this area. Uh, but with, with that, I will, um, uh, I, I, uh, I'm done with, uh, with my prepared remarks, and I'm interested to entertain any questions that uh, you've got in the audience. Yes, sir. And, and I'll um, ask you to wait till the microphone comes along and identify yourself so that the people watching at home will know. Uh, we William are Horowitz with Cure. I'm sorry, it's the. I don't think the mic is working yet. Sometimes takes testing, a second. Testing. Yeah. Now, it, now I think it is. Okay. Uh, my name is William Hurwitz, and I'm with Cure. Uh, the question really is on your use of the term 60% actuarial value plan, and what that means from the point of view of uh, insurance consumer. Does that mean that they're buying a plan that's worth less? Does that mean that their doctors are compensated less? Does that mean that they pay a lower premium? Or does it mean they have higher copayments and deductibles? Well, it could mean any of those. uh, I think any of those things, except that their doctors are paid less uh, because it assumes that the amount, I think that those calculations assume the amount that the the, uh, providers are charging is given, is a constant. What, What it means is that However, the cost sharing is structured. Uh, so, how whether you, as a consumer, as a patient, are paying for your care out of pocket uh, in the form of uh, co-payments or co-insurance or deductibles, you and all the other people in a in in, in, uh, in a representative sample of the population, once you average out your out-of-pocket contributions to the total cost of your care, the average is 60%. So again, for an average, so no matter how that cost sharing is structured, uh, no matter whether it's uh, $1,000 deductible and that's it, or if there's co-payments above that or cost or some other, or uh, co-insurance above that, what it means is when when you look at a representative uh, uh, segment of the population, and you apply that health plan to the medical care that that population consumes, that medical plan will cover 60% of the cost, and the patient will, the patients, on average, will cover 40% of the cost. So it's a less generous plan. It doesn't necessarily mean that uh, physicians will be paid more or less under that plan. Yes, ma'am, on the aisle. Thank you. A uh, couple questions. One, I would appreciate if you could clarify for me. Members of Congress, it says um, they always say we want the American citizens to have our plan. Do they pay into their health insurance plan, and when they need medical treatment, do they pay for it? Members of Congress are, uh, generally have health insurance through what's called the Federal Employees Health Benefits Program. Now, this is very close to what the uh, uh, President and Congress want to create for the rest of the country, in the sense that it is a health insurance exchange run by the government where the government decides what benefits the benefits have to be and the government controls the prices and so forth. Um, uh, it is run through an employer, so it is like the employment-based plans that other people have in that the employer makes a contribution, and I'm using quotation fingers because it's not really the employer's contribution. Okay. Economists will tell you that comes out of workers' wages, and that's, I think, the same for members of Congress, although... 
they're not as subject to uh, to, to labor market forces as, uh, as as other workers in the economy. But to get to the, to, to to answer your question directly, if the uh, the way that the Federal Employees Health Benefits Program works is generally the federal government as an employer pays 72% of the cost of your health plan and then the other 28% is deducted from your paycheck whether you're a member of congress or a staffer or you know any other federal employee yeah, covered I, I in that plan i just wanted to make sure i wasn't and, paying for their health care and mine oh you are because oh, the, because okay. you're paying for their in the same way you're paying for their salaries but they do have cost sharing okay. that they have to pay when they consume medical I care okay this, i just wanted a yes or no to the taxpayers paying for them um do you, sorry, sorry for explaining how a watch yeah, works. I mean, it's it's yeah. They say okay. I want. I'm paying for theirs and mine. Do you believe? And I look briefly over the new proposal the president and I have worked in healthcare uh, has submitted for this um, February 25th uh, meeting with whatever. Do you feel that the poverty line should be lowered because a family of four making eighty ninety thousand dollars qualifies? For many, for lots of stuff that family of four making twenty or fifteen thousand. So, do you one believe the poverty line should be decreased from eighty to seventy or sixty? And two, when you talked about um, you all about uh, low income families, and the president has put in this new revised plan. And what was originally going to happen anyway is an increase in Medicaid benefits because folks who can't afford or aren't working and can't afford health insurance are going to go on Medicaid, which falls onto the states. So in the president's new plan that you put out here, he's increasing it to 39% from the Senate plan from 30 So what is Cato's position? I mean, you talk about a free market, but do you believe that I should just – that anybody who has money should just go pay for this and not have insurance? Do you believe the poverty level should be lowered for a family of four? And three, what impact will this have on the state's contributions to Medicaid patients? Because I do believe it will increase. Thank you. Okay, three questions. Uh, what, what is what is um, the libertarian position on, on all of this? Well, I, as a libertarian think that people should have the freedom to choose whether or not they purchase health insurance. We live in a free country that should include the freedom not to purchase health insurance if you have other priorities. There's the objection that that if people do that, then they will inevitably end up in the emergency room, and if they're unable to pay their, their bills, that cost is shifted to the rest of us. The insurance mandate, first of all, not everyone uh, who does it ends up in the emergency room. The insurance, and, and many who do, can pay their bills. So the insurance mandate, um, and if they don't, we have, uh, we have legal measures that, uh, that hospitals and other providers can, uh, can take, legal steps that they can take to collect from those, from those people. Uh, uh, and so it's not that uh, we... This, Requiring people to purchase health insurance is often sold as a measure to promote individual responsibility. I don't think that it promotes individual responsibility. We have laws that do that, that allow hospitals to collect uh, from uh, people who use their services. Uh, All the mandate does is it requires people to pay for that medical care um, in a particular way, through health insurance rather than directly, and it requires a lot of people to pay for medical care who are never going to use that medical care. So... um, 
So I think that people should have the freedom not to purchase health insurance. And by the way, that uh, if, if you do require them to purchase health insurance, it, it destroys insurance markets and destroys innovation that can make health care more affordable for people. As for the federal poverty line, there's, there's always a, a vigorous debate over where it should be set. But it is currently not – it's not set in the range of eighty dollars to $90,000 per year. For a single adult – in 2004, it is set at about 11,000. I'm sorry, in 2009, it's set at about $11,000 per year, and then it varies depending on the number of additional people in that household. So, for a family of four, it's about twice that, about $22,000 per year. Then, what Congress does is it uh, extends eligibility for many means-tested programs up the income ladder, and the way it does that is by using multiples of the federal poverty level. So that what I was talking about here, the subsidies I was talking about here, are available to people who earn 200% or 300% or 400% of the federal poverty level. This came up in the debate over S-CHIP, where uh, because uh, some states expand health insurance, uh, expand eligibility for the state children's health insurance program uh, higher up the income scale, and because f- some family sizes are so large that the federal poverty level is larger as a result, you have a situation where some families are earning over $100,000 per year and are still able f- to qualify for this program that was intended for the working poor. So uh, so I, I, I think that um, I really, to answer your question, I don't have a, uh, a, a well-formed opinion about where the federal poverty level should be. Um, and as for Medicaid, yeah, all of these plans are going to ex- increase Medicaid expenditures. So all of the cost estimates that we've seen in terms of federal spending only represent uh, federal spending. Uh, there are additional costs that will be uh, imposed on the states. And uh, additional, I should, I should also mention, there are additional um, uh, implicit tax rate effects or effective marginal tax rate uh, consequences from those Medicaid changes. Uh, I didn't quite know how to model them, so I stuck to the to the to the private sector stuff. Uh, but I'll also mention that each of these plans achieve about half of their coverage gains through the Medicaid program. So you have if you have 30 million people who would gain coverage under the Senate, the House, or the Obama plans, maybe uh, 13, 15 million of them would be gaining coverage through Medicaid. Uh, rather than through private insurance, which should trouble everybody. The, uh, the uh, uh, Medicare's chief actuary, which has a lot to do with overseeing the Medicaid program, uh, has said that a lot of the supposed health insurance coverage would not be realized because Medicaid pays doctors so little that a lot of these people who are newly enrolled in Medicaid would have a tough time actually uh, accessing medical care. So I hope that answers your question. Uh, question down here. Uh, this is a quick one. Uh, on the president's plan graph that you showed, uh, what year were you looking at? 2009. 2009. What we did was the plan, it's implemented in stages uh, over time. And so uh, what we did was we, we would take the you know final amount for, say, the penalty for not purchasing health insurance, if it was a flat amount, and it uh, uh, kicked in, uh, it, it phased up to that flat amount in, in 2016, I think it is, we deflated that to $2,009. So um, uh, we, we used $2,009 and, um, and uh, deflated everything to $2,009 uh, from when it was fully implemented. Assuming full implementation, what would it look like today? That's what we were trying to answer. 
Question all the way in the back. Ashley March from Cato. Michael, two questions. Just talking about the working poor, um, in terms of the disincentives, in reality, how likely is it that someone who is a family of four at the poverty level in any reasonable space of time would get to 100 or 200% of the poverty level. I mean, is that, is that disincentive real? And the other thing, and I realize this, that this isn't the purpose of the study, you were looking at one side of the equation, the tax effect, but do you have any information about the other side of the equation, which would be uh, how much people are saving and how, what that would do in terms of the net cost or benefit to them? Um, uh, it's good. Qu- first, uh, first question first. A really good question. You know, uh, how, how many people go from twenty? How many families before go from twenty-two thousand dollars per year to one hundred thousand dollars per year? I don't know. Uh, and what is the real impact that these uh, that these f- incentives would have on people's actual work effort? Again, I don't know that. I'd hope that uh, that uh, Gene Sterling would be able to uh, uh, weigh in with what the empirical evidence show. Um, when it comes to those questions. But these, ins- these disincentives are real, and I think they do have an effect, and I think the experience that we had with welfare uh, before and after 1996 demonstrate that they had an effect. Uh, back uh, before 1996, the Cato Institute published a study that showed that, uh, if, if you, um, that a person on welfare can uh, have a higher income than someone earning uh, min- minimum wage. So... Uh, there is a lot of concern that uh, that uh, the cash assistance program, the federal cash assistance entitlement in particular, was creating that sort of dependence. So in 1996, Con- a Republican Congress and President Clinton reformed welfare, eliminated that entitlement, uh, and gave states um, uh, the, uh, the incentive to get those people off of uh, their roles. And the welfare roles uh, were, were slashed. A lot of people predicted the poverty would increase, po- or, uh, but it... Actually, the opposite happened. Poverty fell, and it remains low relative to pre-1996 levels. And so what that suggests is that these sorts of financial – these sorts of disincentives to climb the economic ladder do have an effect on uh, the people's work effort, their their decision uh, to to work. Because if you think about it, if I'm only going to uh, put – uh, if I'm going to be putting an, an additional $5,000 worth of effort forward and I'm only going to get uh, 12, uh, uh, you know, 1000 1250 uh, back or my take-home pay is only going to go up by that much, that's a pretty serious disincentive for someone to, to go out there and, and try to work harder. Um, one uh, – I think one common misconception about uh, uh, in this in this in this area of public policy is people say, "All right, well, I understand you've got these fancy graphs and you're able to crunch all these numbers with all these spreadsheets, but poor people don't do the same thing. They don't look at the president's proposal. They don't look at the eligibility rules and calculate exactly how much uh, they're going to lose if they take that extra uh, if they take that job that pays a little more if they earn those uh, extra uh, they take those extra shifts earn those extra dollars." Um, that's actually not true. I think that the, that that, that uh, low income people are, are are low income. They're not stupid. They're very smart about these sorts of things, um, and 
and are aware of where the where the eligibility cutoffs are for these programs. But even if even if they weren't weren't even if even if they pay no attention to that whatsoever, all they have to do is see a a, a sibling or a or friend or a neighbor uh, try to do the same thing, working those extra hours, and they can see if that person gets ahead financially. And if they see that person is not getting ahead financially, or if that friend or sibling tells them, you know what, I'm, I, I went back to school, I spent all this money, I, I, and, and I don't feel like I'm any better off, then that's all the information they need uh, for those financial, or that's, that's, that, that's all that's needed for those financial incentives uh, to, to make their way into that person's decision making. Now, you had two questions. Did I get both of them? I'm not aware of uh, the impact that um, I, I, so far as I know, the, uh, the mandate and subsidy scheme that exists in these three plans would not have any effect on saving um, uh, because uh, I, I don't believe that there, there aren't any asset tests. Their eligibility for these subsidies or the amount that they would pay in taxes is not contingent upon um, how much they would save. Now, um, the amount they save actually would impact their income tax liability, in, uh, but I, I don't know that, it would, that that would alter the, the, uh, the findings here or it wouldn't alter them by much. The Medicaid program uh, does have asset tests, so if you have more in assets, uh, you know, including savings, then the, the program allows, then you're no longer eligible for the program. And uh, one of Cato's adjunct scholars, Aaron Yellowitz, has documented, um, along with uh, Jonathan Gruber, who is, um, who is a health economist at MIT and a consultant to the Obama administration, has documented that actually those asset tests in Medicaid do discourage people from saving. They do lead to people holding fewer assets so, so that they can remain eligible for the program. So these, these sorts of financial incentives do have an effect on behavior. Uh, the question is, what's going to happen with, 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 with the health plan at the summit, yeah. at the summit this Thursday? Um, I, I imagine that it's going to go much as everyone else expects it's going to go. There's not going to be any real bipartisan outreach. The president's plan suggests he's not interested in that. Uh, the Democrats are working on a way to get their legislation through Congress without any Republican support. So it seems to me that, and the Republicans don't seem like they're in any mood to uh, to compromise uh, on their opposition to the president's plan because six, 50 to 60 percent of the American public are with them, and uh, the public has been with them in opposition to that plan since July. So I think that what is going to happen on Thursday is largely going to be political posturing. It's going to be a game of who can score the most points uh, against the other team. Uh, in fact, I think that's uh, probably the uh, president's motivation for uh, for holding this in the first place, because he wants to say, we will prohibit insurers from discriminating on the basis of pre-existing conditions. What are you uh, Republicans going to do about that? Um, if Republicans are smart, they will say that those very uh, that very uh, proposal, which is in fact a, a, a price control regime, will lead insurers to discriminate against the uh, against the sick in issuing coverage because they'll avoid them like the plague. Because a fifty thousand dollar patient, they'll only be able to charge ten thousand dollars, and that'll be a forty thousand dollar liability for them. And they're going to try to deny them care however they can in the hopes that they will go to another insurance company and bring down that insurance company's bottom line. 
I don't know uh, what the Republicans are going to say um, in in, uh, in response in, ter- in terms of their proposal um, on a, when, when it comes to pre-existing conditions, um, but uh, but I don't think they're going to dwell on that much anyway. No, my invitation hasn't arrived yet. I'm sure the Republicans will bring up tort reform, and the and the president will claim that he has that he's open to that idea, and he's open to letting uh, uh, the uh, Secretary of Health and Human Services study that idea. But I should add, this is this is one area where I agree with the president rather than the Republicans, because I don't think the Constitution authorizes Congress to uh, to uh, to to alter the rules of medical malpractice liability. Uh, uh, that's a, a, a role for the states. The states have been uh, enacting those reforms, and um, I, I think that Republicans should stick to their limited government and uh, federalist principles in that regard. Another question on the aisle. Uh, hi, my name's Joe Minerick. Um, quick comment on the Federal Employees Health Benefits Plan and then a geeky comment on your numbers. Uh, those on, are the best kind. Yeah. On the, on the Federal Employees Health Benefits Plan, I believe that you said, if I heard you properly, that the federal government controls prices yes. in the federal employees. What they control is the employer contribution. That, and too. And there's, a, there's a, an aspect that I, uh, where I disagree with you in the description there. You said that, I think, that the employee gets 72% of the cost of the plan. The contribution is equal to, I don't know if it's 72% or 75%, but something in that area, of the average of the costs of, I think it's the six biggest plans. And the distinction between that and getting 72% of your plan is that at the margin, you're responsible dollar for dollar if you buy a more expensive plan. Uh, and where you have arrangements like that around the country, and there are a few, there is evidence that that cost consciousness forces competition upon the insurers and the providers, and there are benefits to that. Uh, now, it's not being done perfectly because, of course, if it's 72% of the average of the six biggest plans, if you're one of the six biggest plans, you can raise your price and the contribution will go up. So uh, it's not as strong an incentive on the providers to hold costs down. Uh, as it could be, but I would suggest that there's more promise to that model than the way you seem to be thinking about it. Okay, I have a a response to that. Was that everything, or does it get geekier from there? I'm sorry, I was going to That that was just the FEHBB plan, and it gets geekier from there? All right, well, let me me respond to that before we totally geek out on everybody. the uh, you're, you're, I think you're absolutely right. Well, let me start with the price controls. My comment about price controls: the price controls to which I refer are the uh, are the same price controls that the federal government effectively imposes on every employer-based plan in the nation, which is that the uh, that uh, similar w- workers may not be charged different premiums for the same plan. If you think about it, that means that insurance companies cannot vary the premiums based on your individual health risk. And that is a way of controlling how much the insurance companies charge you in premiums. That is a price control. It's not a price. For some people, it's a price floor. For others, it's a price ceiling. So it's, it's, it's a different t- sort of price control than we were taught about in Econ 101. But 
uh, those sorts of what are effective, effectively a community rating uh, law is actually a price control. So what's interesting about that is you're absolutely right that uh, the, um, uh, as in general, the Feds pick up uh, 72% of the cost, but it is 72% of the co- <clears throat> the average cost of X number of health plans, and then above that, and so that's you, you calculate that it spits out an amount. And then that's how much the feds are paying for everybody. And then above that, if you want more generous coverage, then you're paying for that out of pocket yourself. So it could be more than 28% of the cost of your plan that, that, that you're paying. And at the margin, it's 100%. That is very important, actually, when we're uh, it, in, in a market where we have that first feature, which is that plans cannot uh, discriminate on the basis of, or they cannot set premiums on the basis of your individual health risk, because what happens is you have very price, you have uh, consumers who are very price sensitive at the margin. So the healthy people don't want to buy comprehensive coverage. If they do, they will be charged the same premium as all the sick people in there. So the healthy people in the Federal Employees Health Benefits Plan go to all the least comprehensive plans. While the sickest people, they want the the most uh, coverage they can get. They go to the most comprehensive plans. And what you get is a uh, a sort of a separating equilibrium. You get adverse selection where... uh, the only people or the people who are enrolling in the most comprehensive plans are the sickest. That causes the premiums in those plans to rise until eventually uh, either those plans pair back on coverage so they're more in line with the other plans or those plans die. And this is something that, um, that uh, I don't think has received enough attention in this debate, but a sometime advisor to President Obama named David Cutler has found that that's exactly what happened in the health insurance exchange at Harvard University. It's a big institution, much like the federal government. They're able to have this health insurance exchange with multiple plans. And when they changed from uh, 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 when they changed the employee contributions, so that employees were paying a hundred percent at the margin, what happened was the healthy people said, "Forget it. I don't want that coverage. It's more that comprehensive coverage. It's more expensive for me now." And those comprehensive those comprehensive plans only attracted uh, the sickest people, and eventually they disappeared. And that the same thing has happened in the University of California Health Insurance Exchange. So uh, I, both of your, I, I, I disagree about the price controls. Your point about uh, the, uh, the 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 marginal cost of health insurance to federal workers is well taken, but that does create. I don't think that uh, that th- that works out well for federal workers. I think that uh, creates enormous incentives for insurers to avoid and dump sick patients, and. Um, and, uh, and, and limits health insurance choices for people in the Federal Employees Health Benefits Program. And there are lots of – I can give you other examples of how insurers in the FEHBP respond to those incentives in some pretty odd and perverse ways. Um, just two observations. Number one, uh, in answer to your concerns, that's why we need standardized benefits packages. And number two, it's why we need risk adjustment. Uh, which is done in in many places and is successful. But let me move on to the geeky point. Well, I, I, if if I can if, if if I can respond to those, the standard, that's it's a, it's really a problem of you're swallowing the spider to catch the fly, because the price controls that you want to impose create all these perverse consequences. We have to eliminate choice in insurance markets by having standardized benefits, and because it uh, it, it creates all these incentives for insurers to avoid and mistreat and dump sick people. Well, we need to have them paid according to the risk they assume, but um, so we're going to create a new government program that's going to do that. That's what risk adjustment is. It's a new government program that tries to emulate what market prices would do naturally. Um, rather than going on, um, I'm visualizing your first chart, 
And when you increase in income and you get to your last cliff, mm -hmm. implicitly what you're saying by the way the person is behaving, when the subsidy goes away for the 70% actuarial value plan, the individual is choosing to pay to buy the 60% plan. Yes. Even though part of the cost of the 70% plan would still be paid and is being phased out. Yes. So implicitly what you're saying is that the person you're looking at on that, that chart does not value that subsidy essentially at anything. And accepting your basic point that you are raising revenue to provide insurance and therefore you've got to raise, given the constraints on the overall approach, you have to have a marginal tax applied to phase the benefits down. So in general, I accept that. But the problem that I have is saying that people are subject to those cliffs if it is the case that the individual you're talking about does not value the difference between a 60% plan and a 70% plan at a dime. So it sounds to me like there's an inconsistency there in the assumption with respect to what the individual perceives as a marginal tax hit because the individual does not value those more expensive plans. That is a fair point. And I'd like to talk to you about that, that later. That is a good point. Question over here. Um, exactly who is going to be hit by um, these taxes as new taxes rather than, um, say, I get my insurance from my employer? Um, are we just going to consider what I pay for that as a tax um, under the new Obama plan rather than something that I do voluntarily? And will this fall mainly on people who have no insurance at all? It's uh, For people without insurance, this is going to be all new. I mean, I include the effects of the uh, current federal tax system. And by the way, don't include state income taxes, which would tend to increase uh, the uh, uh, explicit and uh, implicit tax rates that these folks would face. Uh, for the uninsured, this, uh, the, the effects of uh, the uh, House, Senate, and Obama plans would all be new. Uh, for people who already have health insurance, um, the it depends on where your earnings are, uh, and um, and whether your it depends on a number of factors. What, what how how much you're earning right now? Whether the amount of coverage that you have is more or less than what the um, administration uh, and Congress would require you to buy. Um, and so there are some people, actually, who have health insurance right now for whom this would be a windfall. Low-income people who have health insurance, and a lot of them do, would get subsidies right, uh, that they're not uh, getting right now. Now, that makes the money, uh, the, the, the amount of people covered new, newly insured per dollar spent fall because you're spending more money on these people and, you're, and they're already covered, so you're not expanding coverage to anybody. Um, and it also... Uh, uh, creates for those people, even though they are getting that windfall, um, it creates a disincentive to climb the economic ladder that does not exist right now. Uh, for uh, people, I think that those, uh, it has less and less of an effect for people who are insured. Uh, it has less, less of an effect on you if you are insured, if you are um, uh, higher income, and if you are um, 
what's the third one now? If, if you have, depending on the generosity of your health insurance, if you have health insurance that's more than uh, Congress would require you to purchase, I think that uh, the, the minimum actuarial value under the House bill was 70%, so there's some variation uh, between the bills about how much you would be required to purchase. But by the same token, if you already have health insurance and if you have, uh, you're, you're toward the higher end of this income range that we're looking at, that incentive to drop coverage is going to be new because this legislation would take away the penalty for doing so. Um, this sort of elides all the Medicare uh, uh, provisions of, of the legislation, of which there are many. If that was it, it's about 1.30, so I think this is a good time to wrap up. I hope you'll join us upstairs uh, for lunch in the Winter Garden. Thanks.